what if rather than sort of asking people to abstain, what if we kind of double down on that? Humans uh, seem to want to surround themselves with objects they love. Christine Harold is a professor of communication at the University of Washington. Her new book, Things Worth Keeping, The Value of Attachment in a Disposable World, investigates the attachments we form to the objects we buy, keep, and discard, and explores how these attachments might be marshaled to create less wasteful practices and balance our consumerist and ecological impulses. Nicole Seymour is a professor of English based in Southern California, whose book, Bad Environmentalism, Irony and Irreverence in the Ecological Age, seeks out a new way to talk about environmentalism that is less performance and self-righteousness and embraces irony and humor. As the novel coronavirus pandemic continues to rage in the United States, consumption is on pause for a lot of people, and these two scholars are here to talk about what that means. This conversation was recorded in October 2020. Okay. Uh, hi, this is Nicole Seymour. Hi, this is Christine Harold. So I was uh, one of the reviewers for Christine's book in manuscript form, and I'm really excited that it's out in the world right now and um, that I get to talk to you about it. Um, and I have to say, I wasn't sure if you would um, hate me for using a swear word um, <laughs> the blurb on the back of your book. I, was, I loved it, actually. <laughs> okay, good. I just figured now is the time you know, to tell me if you, if you do hate me. But, but um, so... I think it was something like uh, Westerners buy too much shit, but you should definitely buy this book. I'm paraphrasing a little bit there. Um, so your book seems to be motivated in large part by concern over the environmental impact of Western consumerism, specifically the waste it produces. And I really love this point you make about how part of the solution is learning to care about objects. So not just caring about the earth, which is being polluted or workers, who are being exploited. Um, in other words, we need to become stewards of objects, not just stewards of, of place or people. And one of the ways we can do that is by, um, as you say, opening up the object. So I wanted to start by asking you to just explain more what you mean by this idea of uh, opening up the object. Yeah, thank you. That's really helpful. You're right that, that one of the kind of operating premises of the book is that so much environmental rhetoric for all its good intentions, uh, at least as it relates to consumer culture, which is my primary object of study, environmentalist rhetoric tends to ask us to, you know, if you care about the earth, if you care about um, pollution or, or human rights and so on, then the answer to that is to stop shopping, right? We have lots of movements that are, you know, buy nothing day and stop shopping um, uh, campaigns and so on. And I think that those things have a certain utility to be sure as consciousness raising efforts. But I think at the end of the day, they haven't proved as effective as they might. And so one of the things that I really try to grapple with in the book is what if rather than sort of asking people to abstain, to reject that part of themselves that loves things, um, what if we kind of doubled down on that and capitalized on it and kind of took advantage of the fact that humans uh, seem to want to surround themselves with objects they love, to make objects they love, to to take things, to, that is to say that my part of my argument is that what if we take things more seriously um, rather than less? And so one of the ways that I do that, so I'm a, I'm a scholar of rhetoric, so I really look at the ways that we use certainly language, uh, images, signs, but also objects to kind of influence the ways that people think, behave, uh, and believe. And so this project was kind of trying to look at what are some of the roadblocks to um, us really having a more intimate uh, relationship with objects and what are some practices that people are engaging in that are that are an attempt to kind of problematize that. So, yeah, so I, the, I, I, the book really unfolds through what I talk about as a kind of intensifying or an escalating deconstruction of objects, um, at least in the case as the case studies unfold. So I start with Target and the um, ways in which Target as a marketer, as a corporation, really foreground design as 
their central kind of brand identity, right? That we make design for all. Uh, like IKEA and others, they really celebrate uh, what they call a democratization of design. And as I argue in the book, at the end of the day, Target, you know, really sells a version of design where it's kind of a dressing up um, of objects. Their structure and the the conditions of their manufacture are really no different than something you might buy at, say, Walmart, um, but that they're kind of dressed up in, in a skin of design. Um, nevertheless, they do kind of promote an awareness or an interest in designers, in a kind of a design vocabulary and so on. And I can talk about that more. But at the end of the day, the model still kind of treats objects as this kind of discrete other to ourselves. It's this thing on the shelf uh, in a store that I covet in some way. I take it home. It's there to do my bidding. Um, it's there for my use or it's there for my pleasure. But, uh, you know, and, and I have no obligation to it once it loses its shine. I can just toss it onto the landfill. Um, but then I look at other case studies like Ikea, for example. Ikea is, it, for most of, most of its products, are ones that you have to bring home and assemble yourself and, um, and engage in, at least in their um, assembly, right? Not in their manufacture necessarily, but at least the object is kind of opening up, right? So you see lots of people taking advantage of that by through things like Ikea hacking, that there's something almost Lego-esque about Ikea components that for some people sparks their creativity, um, there's also a dynamic in which just the labor of sitting down and spending an afternoon putting together a Billy bookcase, that's an investment. That's an investment of your energy, of your patience, of your time in a way that kind of opens the object up as something that's malleable that you imprint on in a particular way. Like I recognize that these are kind of cookie cutter components that um, make completely homogenous um, objects potentially. Nevertheless, there's kind of um, an opening up that invites our investment. Uh, and then I move on to look at other approaches to making and design um, and modes of design that invites uh, us to imprint our stories on objects. And so I kind of trace this escalating opening up of objects in ways that my hope is anyway, that we can see like new moments in the life of an object from the harvesting of its materials to its, its um, manufacture, to its marketing, to its consumption, to what do we do with it once it's in our homes? What do we do with it once we're done with it? That there's this kind of way in which there's a rhetorical opening up that offers opportunities for us to intervene in different ways, rather than just the traditional model where it's like, it's there for me on the store shelf. I chuck it when I'm done with it. Um, I'm interested in like looking for new points of intervention. Yeah, I think I, the other reason I really like this idea of opening up the object is, is that it, it's both literal and figurative, right? So there's moments where this idea of like, you know, you can watch a video as I did when I actually moved to Germany. Like I watched a video on how I could take out my SIM card uh, and replace it with a German SIM card using a paperclip, right? And I was like, oh my God, I'm a genius. So there's these ways <laughs> you're literally, you know, potentially opening objects, but also opening up, um, opening them up in figurative ways, like affectively, right? Making new um, connections to them and so forth. So um, so I was also really struck by one of the, the claims in your introduction that designers are, are the most under-acknowledged and understudied communicators in our Western and perhaps, you know, the world at large. And, and so I was wondering if you could speak more about this um, idea and why it's important. So why should we see designers as communicators or what, what potentially changes if, if we do see them as such? Yeah, so this book um, is really building off of my first book, also with University of Minnesota Press, um, Our Space, which was looking at the challenges or activists who wanted to challenge corporate branding rhetoric. So things like culture jamming or copyright pirating, really take people who wanted to challenge corporations by way of their brands. And one of the things I argue in that book is that that becomes possible as a terrain of contestation because 
people, you know, there's a whole generation, my generation, um, generation X and beyond millennials and younger who have been reared in a, in a world of branding that were literate in the grammar and the vocabulary and the syntax of branding. And therefore it becomes one of the kind of arrows in our quiver as activists or people who want to make change, um, being literate in branding was really important. One of the things that I'm arguing in this book, or at least a, a kind of um, context in which I imagined this book, is that branding hasn't gone away for sure. I mean, branding is obviously still saturates our, our culture, but it's really the design is really kind of the next generation of branding, right? So it's not just about does my device have an apple on it or does it have like a clever campaign on TV that I, you know, that makes me want it, but there, but the, the actual form function, the way it feels in my hand, um, the interface, those sorts of things, um, we're becoming increasingly literate in that language as well. One of the things about design and Bruce Mao, who's a famous, um, designer makes this comment, you know, that the goal of good design is to be invisible. Um, Right to be in that old cliche of like water to a fish, <clears throat> where we're influenced by design all the time, but good design doesn't really announce itself. As a rhetoric scholar, as a communication scholar, I'm really interested in that. Right, that it's it's a design of interfaces. It's a communicate. It's a style of communication or a mode of communication, but one that kind of purposely wants to be invisible in in, in ways. And I think. You know, we could look at, again, what I was suggesting about Target is is one way and, and Ikea, those are one kind of way in which we've become conversant in some ways in the language of design. Certainly in um, our high tech gadgets, we're becoming increasingly conversant in, you know, what's the footprint, what's its interface, those sorts of things. And so I think it's just kind of on the next terrain in which people can say, okay, well, there's a version of design that you might find at Target, which as I was suggesting before, is sort of like making mass produced things, plastic widgets from China look pretty or look like they're mid-century modern or whatever, right? That it's kind of a skinning operation. That's kind of design as decoration, right? But then there's a whole host of other designers, people, again, of generations who were reared in the vocabulary of design, who are saying either A, let's design things with more sustainable materials, with more sustainable production practices, or those that I look at in the book more closely, designers who say, are there ways that we can actually embed in the form of an object some components that open it up to us imprinting on it emotionally or invite us to imbue it with story? Uh, and so on. And so I just, it, it, let alone just all of the people who are engaged in crafting and making things and so on. So we're seeing this kind of return to everyday people being manufacturers of sorts and exploring. And as, as we know from like the great work on media literacy, the best way to teach people to be media literate, for example, is to just get them making a video or teach them to make a podcast, right? Get, get them literate in the in the in the doing are we podcast literate now this is my first <laughs> i don't know okay so shifting gears a little bit um I, of course I, I felt like i had to ask you a pandemic question yeah because everyone's talking about it but I've, i noticed probably a month into um our lockdown or semi-lockdown that my i hadn't been shopping and not just in a sort of like you know obviously i hadn't been going out and shopping but i also wasn't shopping online which you know, you, you still could. And, and part of the reason I think is that I just wasn't seeing other people. I wasn't seeing, you know, you see a friend and, and they talk about, you know, this like new outfit I just bought, or, you know, I bought tickets to this thing or whatever. And, and so the, the social aspect of um, consumerism wasn't there for me anymore. And so, you know, and, and also, uh, you know, thinking back on this period and, and rereading your book, I'm just thinking about, how much time I was spending in my apartment and just, you know, reconnecting with all of my objects and, um, you know, spending more time with them than I usually do. So I'm just curious if you, you know, you, you personally had a similar experience. Um, 
And maybe if more broadly, you think that the arguments of your book have, have taken on different resonance in the past few months. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's, it's interesting. So exactly what you say, right, that there's this performative quality to at least certain versions of consumption. So as you've probably read, I don't have data on this, but just from reading various culture pieces, um, that the fashion industry is, has taken a huge hit um, recently. Things like athleisure are doing quite well, right? Comfort clothes, but clothes that are specifically fashion, um, it's really hurting, right? Because there's there's not that performative quality um, or there's not the, the context for it right now. Uh, so yeah, so I think there's a few ways in which it seems like our consumption practices are being uh, interrupted right now that are really pertinent to some of the themes of the book. First is that we see this huge... Um, so one of the chapters in the book looks at the kind of seemingly really disparate practices of Marie Kondo's KonMari method of decluttering and hoarding. So looking at kind of our relationship to clutter, for example, you've probably heard this term, or at least it will resonate with you, even if you haven't heard it, Corona cleaning, right? So there's been all these articles about people engaging in Corona cleaning and, you know, cleaning out their homes since they're spending so much time in their homes. So for example, the Goodwill, the, the big Goodwill in Los Angeles had to take out advertisements just saying, please stop bringing things to us because they couldn't accommodate all of just the onslaught of stuff that was being donated to them. So I think there's that dynamic when we're really kind of reevaluating our spaces and, and nesting in, in new ways. Um, but then, of course, you're also hearing a lot about people taking up old hobbies or doing DIY projects, crafting, making bread, doing those kind of self-sufficient, pleasurable, old school activities that at least for now, do kind of interrupt the consumerist impulse, which is like, I'll just go buy the thing, right? So in addition to that, as, as you mentioned, right, lots of people are shopping less, um, or at least they're shopping differently. And so I think there is a really a, a significant, in, I mean, let alone the fact that people not don't just can't go into stores like they used to. But as we know, lots of people are furloughed, laid off, um, out of work, have other expenses. So consumption is on pause for a lot of people. You know, obviously, it's it's hard to know how repatterned things are going to be once things kind of get back. I know we're not going back to normal, but getting back to, to being in person again. I suspect just a lot of our old habits will just come back. <laughs> but I also think that there is a significant repatterning that's happening um, that does have some potential. And I should say, uh, of course, that, um, you know, from my perspective as a the person who could teach online that, um, you know, not everyone had the luxury of uh, connecting again with their objects because they were you know, saving lives and being essential workers. But um, yeah, I do think that based on social media, there was this sense of nesting, as you say. Um, and I was also reading today that uh, sales of houseplants have exploded <laughs> over the past couple months, which is in keeping with this larger trend of um, apparently millennials and, and Gen Z are, you know, now this huge houseplant buying sector. Maybe a wacky question, but I'll just throw it out there. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about something like a plant and how that is and maybe isn't an object in the way that you're writing about in the book, right? But the, at least the narrative around the houseplant explosion is, you know, Gen Z and, and millennials can't afford houses. So, you know, they need to make their tiny apartments look cute. They have to have something to care for. And you don't write about plants, but you do mention a couple examples of objects that are created by designers. They're objects that need us, quote unquote, right? The, the, almost like the Tamagotchi kind of way. So you write about this trash can that, you know, turns itself toward the wall when it needs to be taken out and, and that sort of thing. So um, maybe you could just talk a little bit more about this idea of objects that, that train us to care for them. And maybe, um, you know, what, what is and isn't an object, right? Does a plant count as a consumer object or not because it's a living thing? Yes, and you forgot the uh, the trash or the uh, vacuum cleaner that poops out its <laughs> its dust bag. That's a work of a designer named Hiren Shin who um, did this, you know, admittedly kind of experimental or or kind of conceptual series of appliances that she designed. I mean, they're very cute. Um, 
they're in pastel colors, really rounded edges. It's a toaster, a trash can, and a and a um, vacuum cleaner, and they all are designed in such a way that they call attention to themselves as needing you. So if the tray, the dust, the uh, crumb tray gets full on the toaster, it kind of makes a sneezing motion um, and so on. Her premise is that, you know, one of the reasons we're wired to uh, love babies because they're so helpless that they, you know, we need to tend to their needs. And so she was interested in like, what if I made objects that also kind of demanded attention in the way that a baby does. Um, and she did this with an eye toward attachment, right? Fostering attachment in the way that we attach to babies. And so, yeah, I, I love the example of houseplants. And I don't know that they would count as an object, but they certainly count as a commodity, right? There's something that we acquire. We They, they are a unit of exchange. And yeah, I, I do see the trend toward like, you know, I see like the plant lady t-shirts and you know, all of the macrame hanging, you know, devices and just the, the, the kind of rise of houseplants. And I think you're right that that probably has something to do with um, when people might not be able to buy a home, but they can really nest in the home that they, they have. But I think there's something about houseplants that like the objects that Shin made, they demand our attention. Um, they invite our investment. And I, I do think that they contribute to a kind of an opening up or a kind of a literacy, right? So if you have a home that's when you're surrounded by houseplants and you're starting to learn, what does this one, how much light does this one need? How much water does that one need? Maybe I should position this one in the north window or, you know, whatever. You're starting to develop a literacy, right? A capacity to tend to the needs of something outside yourself. And I would say that at a formal level, that in and of itself kind of repatterns the consumer model, the way of being that we're invited to inhabit by consumer culture, where it's like, everything's there for me. Does it delight me? Does it give me joy? Um, if it doesn't, chuck it, right? And I think plants are an interesting example of, you know, let's just say object. I, I think they're probably not objects necessarily, but commodities that kind of force us out of that pattern. Because we have to say, what does it need? It's starting to look kind of wilted or it's starting to look kind of brown. It's a tuning in to something outside yourself that I think is, is fundamentally powerful. And then maybe if you go, maybe, right, it cultivates a, a hunger to get out into the natural world. And maybe you're tuning in there a little bit more too, because you've honed it a bit at home. Well, I was thinking about your, um, you just mentioned your hoarding chapter and you know, I, th I think you even mentioned that maybe it was an Animal Planet show, like animal hoarders, right? But then I was like, there's something about like, are, is there such a thing as plant hoarders? Because it almost seems like on Instagram, like the more the better, right? You could have yeah. like hundreds of plants and then people are actually jealous of you rather than than sort of horrified by it. But, um, but yeah, this, this question of, I guess it's a form of consumption that sort of reflects positively on, on you, whereas other forms reflect negatively. You're right that it does seem like the more the better. I mean, I have that attitude in my home, right? I, I, I regularly grab a plant just when I'm at the grocery store. I see a plant I like, I'll grab it and find a place for it. Never do I go out and say, I'm looking for a particular kind of plant. I just pick them up, right? And yeah, I don't think we have quite the same sort of uh, shame. Plants aren't really clutter, I think, for most people. Um, this does remind me, though, that, um, that that's the chapter where you talk about Marie Kondo. And I, I promised to tell you about um, yes, please. Marie Kondo at the Oscars. I can't say I actually met her. I, I just saw her from afar. But um, I have a friend who works for the library of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. So he's a librarian for the Oscars, basically. And, and so he got he got me a ticket as a seat filler. I was a lowly seat filler. That's so cool. <laughs> it was it was amazing. But I was in the lobby and I, I saw this person and I'm usually good at recognizing celebrities and I recognized her face, but she was out of place because I was like, who, I know who she is, but she's not an actor. I was so confused. And I was like, oh my God, it's Marie Kondo. And then I met <laughs> into at a cocktail party later that night. And then a third time at the valet. And so I just felt like she was, this is two years ago, or I guess a year and a half ago. 
Um, but she was very of the moment. And I just thought that was, you know, she's, she's made it. She's definitely made it that she's uh, got, got that invite to the Oscars. I don't know that she got the invite the next year. But... She definitely um, had a huge moment. I mean, I don't, I think she's still very popular, but yes, it was um, when the show launched in January of what was it? 2019 people just couldn't get enough of her. And so many people who knew that I was writing, you know, have a chapter that engages her. I can't tell you how many emails and texts that I get from friends and colleagues around the country just saying, did you see this? Did you see that? (laughs) And of course, with this, there's this new show on Netflix, um, based on the home edit Instagram feed that's very popular. Lots of people texting me about that as well. One of the things I was thinking about is you already kind of mentioned earlier, this idea of um, your skepticism around consciousness raising, right? This idea that if you just, um, for example, you know, show people a picture of a garbage dump filled with you know, castaway toys and, and clothes or whatever, people will stop, stop buying those things. And, and your argument just to you know, reiterate is that you're saying, you know, we need to ask instead, well, also ask, um, you know, how can we design and also care for things differently such that we don't want to throw them away in the first place, right? Um, and, you know, I wrote in my book a lot about you know, just against this sort of idea of uh, gotcha environmentalism or expose environmentalism or whatever whatever you want to call it. This idea that um, you just need to show people, right? That there's this phrase called the knowledge deficit hypothesis, right? That it's people just don't know and they need to know or they need to be shown or they need to see it. And that's really what's going to change things. And, you know, I come from this more cynical uh, viewpoint. It sounds like you do a bit as well, which is, you know, people know things are bad. People, <laughs> people know that they've done too much stuff, you know, it's, it's, we're way past that point. And so I just, you know, I appreciated sort of seeing your take on that from, you know, from a different angle or sort of using different, different examples. And then the other thing I was thinking a lot about is that, um, you know, we were both really interested in, in feelings and, and affect, including pleasure. And, you know, I was just thinking that, you know, for you, it's you know, this idea of critical consumerism, right? A critical consumerism without pleasure won't work, right? People, we just need to find, we need to locate the pleasure point in different places, perhaps. Um, but just telling people, you know, stop buying things, you know, just be, be uh, this uh, austerity um, approach doesn't, doesn't really work, right? And, and for me, it's about like an environmentalism without pleasure will not work. And again, an environmentalism that's all about sort of what you're doing is bad and, you know, cut it out and so forth. Um, so yeah, I think, think in a lot of interesting ways where we're, we sort of have the same spirit. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I loved that too. And um, I think it's the opening quote of my first, cha- of my introduction. I, I cite uh, Juliet Shore. Um, I can't reproduce the quote, but she basically says like, it's not about donning a hair shirt, right? Like we don't need to flagellate ourselves in order to make good choices. And, and I think we both in our, in, in, me through the lens of consumer culture, and I think you explore it in a broader sense, looking at kind of the ways we talk about environmentalism itself. Absolutely. I mean, I think I, I quote Slaughterdyke and you quote others, you know, to kind of take this posture of, you know, we have lots of evidence that say smoking is bad for you. And yet <laughs> people still smoke, right? It's not just about a knowledge deficit. Um, it's about helping or to to provide ways of repatterning people's desires and forging new kinds of pleasure uh, and so on, at least as part of the conversation, right? It, it might not exhaust the possibilities, but I think we both agree, at least in our work, that um, that a kind of a austerity, abstinence, you know, refraining, um, purity overdetermines the discourse. And, and I wanted to ask you, uh, your book about environmentalism. First, I would love to hear you kind of explain what you mean by that. Um, but then to kind of hear you talk about ways that it interrupts that tendency of environmentalist rhetoric to be overdetermined by these things like purity and certainty and, you know, a certain version of wearing a hair shirt, right? If you care about the environment. Yeah, so I just think of it as environmentalism in a different tenor with a different spirit. So all the texts, all the examples I look at, whether it's you know performance art or stand-up comedy or, or animation, um, you can locate in all of these texts 
a, a very real concern for the environment, for you know environmental injustice and, and so forth, but they're just not doing the um, killjoy environmentalism. They're not doing the gloom and doom. They're not doing the didactic sort of like, you know, I'm here to tell you again, you know, here to show you the facts. And a lot of these examples come from, I think, a, a dissatisfaction with mainstream environmentalism, not just in the affective sense, as I'm suggesting, right, you know, not just the the guilt <laughs> that I guess we're both talking about, right, you know, not just a dissatisfaction with, with the guilt, but a dissatisfaction with the ways in which um, those affective modes are really tied up with normative social stances, right? So mainstream environmentalism can be very heteronormative, can be very white, um, very ableist. And so um, the the examples I'm looking at come from, you know, queer uh, environmentalists that are like, hey, let's dress up in like really, you know, gaudy clothes and, you know, be very excessive and be... Um, very uh, indulgent and all these things that environments environmentalists are not supposed to be. Yeah, so it really connect the the sort of affective modes that they're working with to um, these um, social dynamics or these these sort of social demographics that that they're coming from. And um, that's I was just working on I'm working on a new book right now, which is actually about glitter. Um, and there's all these um, biodegradable brands of glitter that are, that are coming out now which like the perfect sure. are they sugar or um some are made of sugar some are made of um cellulose and i'm actually interviewing a a, a glitter manufacturer eco glitter manufacturer tomorrow so i will <laughs> about all the, the the natural minerals but but to me that's just sort of uh like the perfect expression of of that environmentalism right this idea that you want to be ostentatious you want to be ridiculous you want to be indulgent you want to be over the top you want to be excessive but you actually do care about the environment so yeah I mean I think both of us are coming from a perspective that at least wants to look at the ways in which because I'm looking at kind of attachment investment you it's hard to get people to invest in a negative right (laughs) to invest in a mode of discourse that kind of where you're constantly judging yourself right and I think the kinds of things that you're looking at yeah they're ostentatious they're kind of ridiculous and and so on. And I think there's a really cool way in which that's hijacking or repatterning. So much of environmentalism seems to be about a kind of, and you talk about this in, in your final chapter, a kind of aspirational lifestyle brand, right? There's almost a look, right? There's either the kind of um, white middle-class whole foods shopping mom version, um, or there's the kind of, you know, old school, like hippie version, which I think is less prevalent nowadays. But there is a way in which mainstream environmentalism kind of gets reduced to consumer choices. Where do you shop? What kind of look, right? Like, does your home have? What kind of look does your style have? And there's a weird kind of aesthetic minimalism that comes with that that might not be green at all, but it's almost like the sign of of a particular, like, I'm someone who's constrained and living minimally and so on when really it's just a, a kind of a, an aesthetic choice. And I'm just really interested in the, the examples that you point to in bad environmentalism really challenge that. And so what I'm in, I'm interested in hearing you kind of talk about, they offer an alternative aesthetic and style and like approach, but it's more than that too. It's almost like they offer a, another form as well. And so one of the things that I thought was really interesting in your introduction, you say that much environmentalist rhetoric tends to privilege things like proximity and presence um, that might make them kind of allergic to the to the distancing mode that irony brings. And I just would be interested to hear you talk about that sort of, because you're not, bad environmentalism isn't just like a different aesthetic. It's a different structure too. Right. Um, so I mentioned yeah, definitely irony is all over the book. And I'll talk about that in one second. But when when you said form, I was thinking about how a lot of the forms I talk about are understood to be trashy to begin with and understood to be non-environmentalist to begin with. So something like animation is considered, it's exaggerated, right? It's crude, unless you're talking about a few exceptions like Pixar or the uh, Spirited Away, things like The Simpsons, which I write about, um, 
and the good family are, you know, they're not beautiful, right? There's, it's just like the form of it is actually not beautiful. And right. There's a vulgarity to it. Exactly. And we, and we think of environmentalist texts as being beautiful, right? That how could you, you know, think about Rachel Carson, you, you know, we have to stoke wonder, right? And, and her prose itself has to be wondrous. It has to be beautiful. And so a lot of the texts that I'm, I'm talking about are by their very form, not thought of or not believed to be um, environmentalists. And then the irony that, that they all have in, in some sense is, you know, as you said, irony is associated with distance, like emotional distancing, right? That you, you're too cool to care about something, right? You've got to make a joke or whatever. And um, I've just personally, I've come to think of irony in such a different way since I've, I've written this book. And my, my own personal mode is like, I make a joke about absolutely everything, right? Like I'm constantly um, compulsion. And for me, it's, it's protection, right? It's this idea of, you know, God thinks they're so grim. <laughs> like, and like I said before, we all know how grim they are. We live it, we, you know. And um, so there's a way in which I think these texts and, and, you know, just me as a person, we sort of, you know, we need to have a little bit of cushioning <laughs> to, just to get through the day. Is that the distancing? Yeah, it's a, it's a self-protection mode. Um, but at the same time, a lot of these texts are, and this is another sort of crucial part of, um, you know, the whole book's argument is almost all of these texts are self-reflective and self-reflexive, and they're making fun of themselves. They're not just making fun of other things, right? So if we, we go back to that, um, you're, you mentioned smoking earlier. There's this famous moment in um, An Inconvenient Truth where um, Al Gore shows these old pictures of like smoking ads, right? And and just just showing the ads where they're like, you know, ten out of nine out of ten doctors agree that like you know cigarettes are great. But just even showing these ads, people laugh automatically, right? Because there's this sense of um, oh, they're they're so dumb, they didn't know, and we know better, right? And I think a, a lot of environmentalists take that approach, which is like we've just got to reveal that you know uh, shell oil is you know evil, and then we can feel superior and you know ta-da we've you know pulled pulled the the curtain um you know off of shell oil and we see it for what or whatever um and so these texts are are ironic in that sense right that it's what Bronislaw Zerzinski calls a corrective irony so they're using irony uh I should say when environmentalists do use irony which is rare <laughs> it's to do that kind of corrective <laughs> irony to say like oh we know so much better we know better right than- you thought it was this one thing but really it's this other thing exactly exactly and so what's different about the texts that I talk about is they make fun of themselves as well. So they're not taking this superior standpoint, which I think makes them more approachable and doesn't get them into that. You know, even though they are using irony, which is distancing, they they can still connect to an audience because they can say, yeah, I'm a mess too, right? You know, like, um, either I still like to buy things too, yet I care about the environment. So, yeah. Right. I love that. Yeah. So what this this makes me think of of this other. See if I can articulate this. This this thing that I think both of our projects share, um, but in different ways. So for my work, I'm kind of walking a careful line, looking at really con- like some of my examples are really like the epitome of like consumer big corporate consumer brands, right? Like Target, IKEA, and so on. And yet I'm not just taking a stand of like they're bad for the environment. They promote waste, right? Um, that I'm wanting to look for like more, like what are they a symptom of? Why, why is it that this appeal to design seems to speak to people uh, so much? I'm interested in kind of looking for like, yes, obviously target isn't a path to kind of greener living, but there is this kind of opening up of a particular vocabulary and so on that I talked about earlier. Or I look at other examples again, that are, are kind of playful and um, a little bit more ambiguous and aren't perfect, I guess, from an environment, like if you were sort of evaluating it on purely green terms, um, none of my examples are what you could call perfect. Um, and yours, of course, that that's kind of fundamental to bad environmentalism, but also kind of a queer um, approach in general, where you're, you're playing up playfulness, ambiguity, and so on. So one of the things I've often grappled with, and I'm just wondering if you do too, is that irony and ambiguity, I agree with you that they're more productive in terms of just like opening up a new space, um, 
you know, and new patterns of practice and being and so on. But is there a downside to ambiguity? Are there risks in having one's message be so open for interpretation, especially in a time when, as you say, I was devastated by that anecdote you tell in the beginning of your book about like how the Senate um, declared climate change real and then what it was in like 15 minutes later voted that it, can you explain that? Oh, yeah, that, that, um, yeah, 15 minutes later, uh, the, the second resolution was that it was not man-made. It was not, <laughs> it wasn't our fault. So climate change is real, but we didn't do it. Right. Uh, I was just blown away. So, so given that that's still like a matter of debate, um, in some ways seems to call for a response that's like fact-based and certain and pure. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? So I just, do you ever struggle with like um, that question of ambiguity in a time where even those we're we're kind of trying to challenge are themselves ambiguous. Yeah, I mean, not. I don't want to say that like I've given up fighting for like uh, facts, whatever. <laughs> like, I don't want to say that like you know I, I drank the the fake news Kool Aid. <laughs> but um, you know, I was just thinking today about um, AOC. Uh, you know, tweeted something about, you know, you guys attacked me for getting a $200 haircut. And now, uh, you know, Trump spent $70,000 on his haircuts. And I mean, that can go back and forth forever, right? Where it's just kind of, they don't care about facts, right? So we, we that's already that's been established. They don't care. How are you going to fight with facts with someone who doesn't care about the facts or whatever? So, and, and again, maybe this is just my deep cynicism where I just, I think we're somewhere else right now. Like, I don't think we're back in that zone if we ever were of like the knowledge deficit hypothesis <laughs> once you point out that $70,000 on his hair everyone's going to apologize to AOC or something that's where we've so passed that moment so i guess i'm just interested in in the fact that that people the, you know these comedians that i'm talking about these stand up comedians or these you know animators or these um drag queens or who you know all these people i'm talking about in my book are just sort of like let's just try something else uh, let's just try a different approach. And, you know, I did have this moment writing this book where I, w- I was in this crisis where I was like, do I want to endorse all of these things? You know, I write about this show called Wild Boys. It's sort of a nature program parody and can, can be very offended by it, right? It's very un-PC. And I had this moment where I was like, is, is that what I'm trying to do with this book? Am I trying to say like, look, these these examples are a better way to do environmentalism and I realized that's not really the point of the book is to say these examples already exist. We just haven't noticed them. And what does it mean that they exist, right? What does it mean that so many people feel the need to do stand-up comedy about the environment in a world that thinks of environmentalists as killjoys, right? Like there, there's this other narrative that's happening that we're not paying attention to and we just need to pay attention to it and sort of think about, you know, again, what does it mean that someone... Uh, who's a vegan as you know steve who's the star of well boys he's a vegan um, but he doesn't want to make a serious vegan tv show he wants to make a ridiculous stunt tv show where like you know being chased around you know like butt naked like a hyena or whatever like what does it mean that someone is like that's how i want to tell the world about my veganism is by like you know running around naked on on a television screen and so yeah i guess you know, maybe this is a cop out, but, you know, at the end of the day, I think I just say, you know, the the proof is already out there that people want a different way to, to feel and to talk about environmentalism, whether it's right or wrong. This is just (laughs) what's already happening. We just haven't paid attention. No, absolutely. And I think, I think, you know, just going back to where I think we were both, we both agree that like the, the traditional message of like, look at the facts, or I'm going to expose this, this particular corporate evil, and, and then people will behave accordingly. Um, in my first book, I look at this example of this organization called the Biotic Baking Brigade, and they say that their slogan is to pie pompous people. And what they would do is they would pie, they would go to public events. And so they would pie people like Milton Friedman and Bill Gates and whoever was the CEO, I can't remember his name, of Chevron at the time, and other like corporate polluters or economists and so on. And they would just put a pie in their face, right? <laughs> and, and they would record it. And it's ridiculous, but it's also this like moment of rupture. And then of course you stick a pie in the face of Bill Gates, then the cameras are going to turn to you and say, why did you do that? Then suddenly you have an opportunity 
to say why you did that. Any good art or lots of bad art too, kind of makes people scratch their heads and be like, what is that about? And I think that's way more of a moment that we, like we want to create more of those moments where people can kind of, where something is interrupted. And I would argue that the traditional environmentalist message is the status, it, like people are very accustomed to it. Um, and so it's not disruptive, right? But the kinds of things you're looking at are disruptive in the way that they, you know, make people go, huh? Right. And in that moment, there's an opportunity there for people to self-persuade or to to think a little bit differently, even in small ways um, about things that they thought, you know, oh, environmentalism is just for those white ladies at Whole Foods or the hippies or whatever. I think those moments of disruption, even if there's not a clear prescription that follows it, like you saw me naked, now go vegan. Right. It's not necessarily that. But it's just this disruptive moment that could potentially reboot things in a way. Right. Absolutely. So, so yeah, the um, these bad environmentalist texts, I think of them as, you know, like they, they are disrupting environmental destruction, but they're also disrupting environmentalism and that those like those right. two things are, are going together at the, at the same time. Um, so you were talking about branding as sort of, you know, the, this this was the place that, you know, your your previous book was sort of. Um, oscillating to that sort of like where where the world was was also sort of thinking of um, consumerism and then you said you know design is sort of the next thing and what's next right what comes after branding and design what's what's the next book maybe is another way to, to ask that so I'm not sure at this stage if I've got another book in me but I have lots of I have an idea that I'm toying with so I'm not sure if I'm going to execute on it or not if it's like an article or a book or what so, and also I'm, I'm concerned because there's a lot being done on it. Um, my work always tends to be kind of like, I approach things as symptoms, right? That that is to say in rhetorical scholarship, a lot of times people will look at a rhetorical text and then look at what it causes in the world. Um, but I'm more interested in looking at rhetorical trends or consumer trends um, in terms of my work as like, what is that a symptom of? Like, what does that tell us about the moment we're in, in contemporary capitalism, right? Like, why is this thing popular? And so I'm really drawn towards all the debates around mindfulness and wellness and the way the the why is that? So I'm not 100% sure where I'm going with that. And then obviously there's tons being written about it right now. And lots of people challenging it as McMindfulness and that it's just about making better workers, right? That you have lots of companies and universities that have mindfulness programs as part of their wellness, you know, through their HR departments and so on. There's lots of criticism of that. There's lots of criticism of the Army's MindFit program, that is um, basically mindfulness for soldiers. Um, lots and lots of police departments across the country have various mindfulness programs. And so the critique is, of course, well, we're just making better better killers, better soldiers, and so on. Um, I'm interested in, in those debates. I'm interested in the debates around mindfulness in schools and the challenges that you get largely from religious organizations, Christian, I should say, Christian organizations who don't, you know, are concerned about that being sort of Buddhism or or yoga through the back door. But primarily I'm interested in the commodification of all of that. The kind of the commodification of consciousness is how I'm thinking about it. I mean, it fits in with the plants because, you know, it's, it's all yeah. about things to me are all, all sort of, I'm sort of like an old millennial. I'm technically like a year too old to be a millennial, but I don't know. I still, I still feel very millennial. You, you identify. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is how you identify culturally. Yeah. But no, definitely, I feel like this, you know, the meditation, the wellness, the self-care, the plant, it's all part of, you know, an aesthetic, the yoga. And yeah, I mean, I do feel like more and more some of these things are just uh, ways for us to cope with, you know, these horrible things that are happening in the world rather than stopping the horrible things that are happening in the world. But um yeah, I mean, one time, when when one area it gets it gets concerning is just when it's all about sort of. I mean, there's certain versions of this kind of spirituality or mindfulness where it's just all about you imbuing yourself with the fortitude to kind of move through the world. Um, and then there's other versions of it that are much more about opening 
yourself up where a lot of the plant medicine stuff right around like psilocybin and, and, um, ayahuasca and that sort of stuff is, is a very different patterning. It's a lot about opening yourself up and dis dissolving the boundaries of self. But then there's other versions of like self-care and whatnot that are all about doubling down on the notion of the self that consumerism depends upon. Right. That's usually my take on most things, right? That it's like, it kind of, it kind of can go both ways. Sometimes the commodification of something can be a good thing because it has the power of capital behind it to popularize things that otherwise were on the fringe. And I think sometimes that's really powerful, but then of course, a lot of times it gets hollowed out in the process. The content of it gets hollowed out in the process. I always go back to this. Uh, I, I can send you a link later, but um, there's somewhere online. There's this. Um, it, it's called something like ten self care activities that don't cost money. <laughs> and I just feel like that's the yeah we yeah. Still, the thread of self care where it seemed like such a great idea and it was absolutely what we needed. And then it turned out that it, <laughs> it was just another way to sell things. Yeah, but, once Gwyneth Paltrow gets her hands on it, it becomes you. Know, <laughs> Um, I'm interested in reading what you write about plants in the kind of critical theory world, as I'm sure you know, there's all this interesting work. Two of my mentors at Penn State, um, Rich Doyle and Jeff Nealon, both write about, have written about plants. And I just think it's such an interesting area of study. By the way, have you seen this um, Apple um, movie, the documentary about mushrooms that's coming out? No. I, I can't remember what it's called. I'll send you the link. It's It looks really interesting. I haven't decided, but there's definitely something going on about um, there. Now there's these these young people that uh, <laughs> call themselves plant sexuals, and there's a now. Well, yeah. So like the 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 claim is that you know not only are millennials and and Gen Z, you know, not only can they not afford to buy houses, and so they have all these house plants, but they're also having children later and fewer, and so there's a bit of like a moral panic around that, but. Um, there, there's been these sort of um, joking, I guess, semi-joking um, <laughs> sort of slogans like, you know, plant parenthood, people calling themselves plant daddies on Instagram and, and that sort of thing. And and so, you know, from a queer studies standpoint and, and also an environmental studies standpoint, I'm really interested in how these, um, like how the plant is coming in to, to, to represent all of these like material and social changes right so the way people are living is changing but also the way people are like having sex or not having sex is changing um and so that the, and there's all this like weird eroticization of the plant then right that it gets to stand in for uh the reproduction that, that's not happening so that's well i'll keep an eye out for it <laughs> thank you so much again for for talking and um, oh thank you nicole i really appreciate you making the time and congrats on the book very exciting. thank you very much i appreciate that for more information about both of these books, visit z.umn.edu forward slash things worth keeping and z.umn.edu forward slash bad environmentalism. Thank you for listening.